0: Turn to the book of Hebrews, and last week John Culver did a great job in kicking this series off, reminding us what faith is, and, and that our faith needs to be centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, that faith produces hope, that faith produces a confidence that no matter what suffering we face, that faith is what allows us to know that if God is for us who can be against us, that we can weather any storm that comes in life. And today we turn to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4. And we come to a place in our text that we're going to be given the first of many examples. Now I love the writer of Hebrews because he talks throughout his book about a lot of lofty thoughts and And uh, ways of kind of thinking. And then he helps us with practical examples of how people live these things out. And we start with the name Abel this morning in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4. And some may be well acquainted with Abel. Uh, while others may not. We need to recognize that the people who were reading the book of Hebrews for the first time knew exactly who Abel was. And so what we're going to do today is read Hebrews eleven four, and then I'm going to move us right away in our first point to the beginning of the of the life as we know it, as time as we know it, to the book of Genesis. And we're going to learn a little bit more about a tale of of two brothers. But let's look at our text this morning and it'll be our launching pad and I'll pray a blessing on our time and then we'll jump right into the text. It tells us, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, a couple of things I want to draw out from here just as a way of kind of setting the tone of where we're going to go. I want to ask a couple of questions and hopefully answer a couple of questions this morning. Why did God accept the sacrifice of Abel and not Cain? What was it about Abel's gift that God accepted? And number three, how is it that a man who's dead can still speak? I want to address that this morning, but let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we ask that you would give us faith. We know, as we learned last week, that faith comes from you. That we need you to put faith into our lives. It's not something that we can go to a store and pick up. Lord, I pray that as you give us faith, that we would exercise that faith. That we would do so in the big things of our lives and even in the little details of life. Father, I pray that that when it comes to our faith, that our faith would be what it is for Abel, that which allows us to draw close to you in a worthy and upright way. Father, I pray that as we live lives of faith, we might, as Abel was, be found righteous, be found acceptable unto you. Lord, we know we can't do this on our own. And we're reminded that we are told a chapter later in this book, that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. So, Lord, we pray you would write our faith story. We pray that you would perfect uh, the incomplete faith in us. Lord, though we are faithless, let us turn to the one who is utterly faithful. We love you and give you praise for your word. We give you praise for the preaching of it. And we ask that we would learn today from that word. In Christ's name, amen and amen. Well, I come from a family of three boys. My older brother, who's now passed away, was two and a half years older than me. And I was born in 1976. And for some, that makes me really, really young. And for others, it makes me really, really old. But 13 months later, my younger brother, Joel, came. We're called Irish twins. Not so much twins as as being born at the same day, but twins because... We're so close in age. I tell my brother all the time it's because my parents saw what they could make and saw how glorious it was and thought, let's try and do it again. But I would be remiss to think that that's the case. But as Irish twins, my brother and I, from the very get-go, were very different. My brother's always been a very serious guy. Even as a young boy, he was a serious guy. A sober individual. I was more carefree. I got myself in a lot of trouble, whereas Joel never got in trouble. Uh, I was really, really bad in school. Joel excelled in school. In fact, he finished uh, high school in three years. and I mean, he just... We, we were just opposites. And a lot of times that opposites created friction. A lot of times we stepped on one another's toes. And while I have the utmost respect for my brother, we are very, even to this day, very, very different people. And yet, amidst our differences, one thing about us is incredibly similar. And that is our faith. My brother has a robust faith. He honors God each and every day of his life. He, he honors God in the way he lives. He honors God in the way he fathers. He honors God in the way he interacts with believers and, and non-believers alive. He loves the church. He loves to be on mission for Christ. And I am here to tell you that while my brother and I are so incredibly different in so many ways... We are almost identical twins when it comes to our love for Christ and His church. And yet we come to a story in the book of Genesis about two other brothers, seemingly who are similar in every way, the opposite of my brother and I, and yet different where I believe it mattered most, and that was their faith. You see, Abel seemingly loved God, and honored God, and served God, and Cain seemingly did things that angered God, and upset God, and and we need to come to recognize and know what the difference between those two brothers were, because we are told in the book of James that some, even false teachers as they're declared in, in, I'm sorry, in the book of Jude, not James, in the book of Jude, we are told that these false teachers went the way of Cain that led them to destruction. And then we read here in the hall of faith that Abel was righteous and accepted by God. And we've got to ask the question today, are we going the way of Cain or are we going the way of Abel? Are we faith-filled people who are living for God because we want to, not because we have to? Well, to understand what's going on, because we're given very little, one sentence about Abel it tells us that the recipients of the letter knew exactly what the author was talking about. But I'm going to believe in our uh, crowd today that there are some that don't even know who Abel is. Maybe you've heard the anecdote of Cain versus Abel, uh, but you don't know much more of it. For us to understand what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, we've got to go back to the beginning. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. To the book of Genesis. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4. And as you're moving to Genesis chapter 4, way at the beginning of the Bible, uh, let's just kind of catch you up where we're at since the foundations of the world. So God is an infinite, almighty, um, all-knowing God who has, been, who has existed. There's never been a time where he hasn't existed. Uh, and he begins at some point in eternity past, he comes to a decision that he is going to create the heavens and the earth. And we don't know why he makes the decision that he does, but in conversation with the three persons of the Trinity, God makes this decision, I am going to create, and he does. And recorded are the six days of creation. God starts creating, and with each creative act, he says it's good. Now on the sixth day, we are told that he puts a pinnacle to all of his creation, and he creates humanity. And the first human being is Adam. And when he creates Adam, he says, this is very good. This is better than anything I've created up to this point. And the reason why Adam is the pinnacle of creation isn't so much because we were greater. There were creatures that were way bigger than us. There were creatures uh, that were smarter and and, uh, more knowing than we are, and that being the angels, Uh, they were far more powerful. But the reason why we were the pinnacle of creation wasn't because of our size or our intellect or our abilities, but the reason was is God wanted to have a relationship that was so special and so specific to us outside of all other creation, and he creates man. And so that's Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, we see that God gives this pinnacle of his creation, man, he gives him a place to live. It's called the Garden of Eden. And then he says, I've got a job for you. You're gonna have dominion. You're in charge of all of this. I've created it, and you're gonna be my middle manager to oversee all that takes place. And at the end of chapter two, we see Adam taking dominion over the garden. He's naming the animals, and he's working with God to bring order to this creative work that God has done. But then after naming the animals at the end of Genesis chapter 2, we are told that God looks to man and he seemingly sees that man feels isolated. Man feels alone. And I wonder if it was as he was naming the animals, he names them and they're in pairs, each of them having uh, their own uh, individual to uh, complement them. And he looks and says, I have no such creature next to me to compliment me, to live life with, to, uh, to seemingly propagate new uh, children and offspring as a result. And Adam becomes lonely. And God says it's not good for man to be alone. And so at the end of chapter 2, God puts Adam into a sleep and he creates Eve and Adam and and Eve honeymoon together, and and they begin to live life together. And we don't know how long this experience goes. It may have been for a year. It may have been for hundreds of years. We we aren't told. But at some point, as they're enjoying the perfection of the garden, and and it's hard for us to understand what that is. I remember years ago when I was... uh, um, going to the doctor, they would have this Bible, illustrated Bible book in the, on the coffee table in the waiting room. And I always was struck by what Garden of Eden was like. And they would do their best job to illustrate it. It just looked like the Amazon rainforest, right? But it had to be glorious to be able to relate with God. We are told they walked and talked with God in a relationship that you and I will not experience until we get to heaven. They enjoyed earth as it was supposed to be. No trouble, no pain, no heartache, no hardship of any kind. Listen, in the Garden of Eden, there was no such thing as a Monday. Every day was the weekend. It was an enjoyable time. It was, as John Milton tells us, it was paradise. It was paradise. But then in Genesis chapter 3, something terrible takes place. The devil who had fallen from heaven, who had been thrown from heaven as a result of his rebellion before the foundations of the earth sometime in eternity past, God allowed for him to be in the garden. And because I believe that the devil had seen that there was this new creature that God was relating to in a similar way that he had related to even Lucifer, who is the devil, when he was an angel... He recognized, listen, if I can get this new creature to fall, then they'll be in the same spot I am. And so the devil plays the spoiler, and he tempts Adam and Eve to break one of God's commands. And Adam and Eve emits perfection, emits having everything that they could ever want or desire. They decide to follow the devil and follow the devil into his rebellion. But something very different takes place, and something that I believe that the devil never saw coming. I think that the devil thought, if I can get this man and woman to sin, then they'll be doomed just like the demons and I are are doomed. But God comes, and He does what He did with the angels. He brings curses, and He brings judgment. And in Genesis chapter 3, especially in the middle part, we see after their sin, after their fall, God comes and He brings judgments to them. And He brings some to the men, and some to the women, and some of them in their relationship with one another, that because of that, not only will we be at war with God, but we'll be at war with one another because of our sin. But then, God does something quite remarkable. God says in Genesis 3.15 that though Adam and Eve have fallen, unlike the angels, God is going to bring a deliverer, a redeemer. And this redeemer, this deliverer, is going to come from the offspring of the woman. Our answer, our hope, God was going to bring through us. And He was going to use that redeemer, that deliverer, to crush the head of Satan, even though Satan would bruise the heel of this Redeemer. Now, Adam and Eve have no idea what God's talking about. In fact, you're going to see, I believe, and many scholars do as well, that Eve thinks when she gives birth to Cain, that Cain is the deliverer, that he's the answer. Isn't that like human beings to think that when God speaks, we are the generation that it's going to take place in? How many generations have thought that was the generation that Jesus was going to return? How many of us think, well, this has got to be the year that Jesus is going to come back and we're mistaken. Even Eve thought here was the answer, even though the answer was thousands of years away in the person of Jesus. And so Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and they're given a promise of a redeemer. And they now have to live by faith. But notice what Genesis chapter 4 brings us as we get into the text that will lead us this morning. Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1, tells us the following. Uh, Let's see here. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She's thinking this is the offspring of Genesis 3.15. And again she bore his brother Abel, Cain the oldest, Abel the youngest. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, here's what the book of Hebrews is helping us with, in the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So let's stop there. We've got this story. And there's, as we approach these 16 verses of Genesis 4, I just want to be really, really honest with you this morning and say, as I read this story, I leave Genesis 4 with lots and lots of questions. Let's start there. Whole lot of questions. And I want to encourage you that as a Bible student, when we approach the scriptures, there are going to be times where we read something and are like, What in the world is going on? Now, the writer of this text is Moses. And by the Holy Spirit, he is being told what transpired because Moses wasn't there. It would be generations before Moses would ever see uh, his time on earth. But the story helps us to recognize that there are lots of questions in the Bible that we just can't answer. And I just want to be honest with you that as your pastor, I approach the Scriptures the very same way. Some of the questions I have, number one, how much did Cain and Abel know about God? What did they know about God? How much had their parents taught them about God? We need to assume that Adam and Eve spoke much about God as they were raising their children. Number two, while there's no mention of Cain or Abel being married at this point or having children, in fact, it tells us later that after he is moved to Nod, after verse 16, in fact, in verse 17, Cain uh, has a wife and they have children. So if it is Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, no wives, no children, who are these people that Abel is so worried about that are going to kill him? Right? I don't know. I don't have an answer. Okay, and scholars have lots of different answers, and some are good possibilities, other ones are terrible speculation, but we don't know. Number three, where is the reaction of Adam and Eve? Now, listen, there's not a Christmas that goes by that I am not reminded by my mom of some ugly thing I did to my brothers, but I never killed them. Where's the response of a mom and dad to the death of their son? There's only a mere mention of, Cain's de- of of Abel's death when Seth is born to, uh, to Eve uh, as the third child. So it's like, what was their response? Number four, what was it about the sacrifice of Cain's that was unacceptable? And what was it about Abel's sacrifice that was acceptable? And listen, at the end of the day, we don't know. We don't know what it is. We'll talk about some speculative things and what it could have been, but we really don't know. So we've got these two brothers who in many ways are very similar, who lived in a very, uh, very same world doing similar types of things, and yet their faith goes in two different directions. And so we've got some questions, but I also want you to know there are a lot of applications as well. Applications that I don't have time to draw out, but are so important to this story that it's important that I list them for you so that you may be able to look at them with the time you have. Number one, you need to recognize, and I need to recognize, that the story of Cain and Abel, especially Cain, reminds us of the deceitfulness of the human heart. We are one generation from perfection. And we have gone from the Garden of Eden to the gutter of sin with one parent-to-child relationship. Cain, his parents, tasted a intimate and personal relationship with God, and now we have brother killing brother. The prophet tells us the heart is deceitfully sick. Who can understand it? And we need to recognize that we are capable of ugly, ugly things as a result of sin. And We need to be careful of doing those things. Number two, anger is something that we have to get control of. Anger is something we have to get control of. Cain allowed his anger to get the best of him. And not only did it impact his own life, but it impacted the life of someone else. In fact, snuffed out a life. And some of you this morning are struggling with uh, the temptation and the emotion of anger. And the Bible speaks that there is a godly anger, but usually our anger is not godly. It's anything but godly. And some of us have uh, allowed our anger to get the best of us. And it has hurt those, even those closest to us. The third application that I want you to see, even though I don't have time to talk about it, is while Adam and Eve were as close to being the most perfect parents that the world's ever known, when it came to their first two children, they had a 50-50 rate of return on their children being spiritual. And that should be a solace to some of you as parents whose children now have grown old and you have taught them and you have raised them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And maybe one's walking with the Lord and, and maybe another one isn't. And we need to be reminded that even the best of parents, because of the fall and because of sin, can produce unrighteous and ungodly kids. And it's not always a reflection on you as much as it is the deceitfulness of man's heart. And then finally, we learn from this, and it's an important application, of how sin can carry heavy and hard consequences. God goes and speaks to Cain about the judgment of his brother's death and what it would carry on him. And Cain says, your judgments are too hard. They're too bitter. And some of us have recognized, and maybe some of us need to recognize, that when we play around with sin, the consequences of sin are hard, and might I add, horrific at times. That what seemingly was done in a moment of passion, in a moment of of bad decision-making has ruined not only your life, but the lives of many other people. And Cain is a reminder of that. And so this, is quite, this story has lots of questions. This story has lots of applications, but the elders have directed us as preachers to address the faith element. And so that's what I want to do with the rest of our time. So what do we need to learn about faith? I want you to recognize that the story of Cain and Abel is a story of how we approach God. And there are two strategies that we see in our text of how people can approach God. And people have been approaching God these ways for all of eternity now. Some go the way of Cain, and some go the way of Abel. And God is telling us that the way of Abel is the most excellent way. It is the right way. It is the Righteous way. But in order to understand better Abel, we've got to understand Cain. And in Cain, we see that living for God is a duty we have to endure. He got it wrong. Now, we aren't told when and how these boys learned about the world they lived in. No doubt, as godly men, as a godly man and woman, Adam and Eve were telling their children. Who God was. No doubt they talked about Eden. They talked about the blessed life that was lived in Eden. The good of life. The good old days when things were perfect. And the children were listening. And they talked about this God, this creative God who created everything seen and unseen. And then they talk about this God who had brought order to their creation. They talked about how loving this God was and the relationship that they had, the things they learned about their universe because of the God who they talked with and dialogued with in their days of Eden. And then they talked about the deceitfulness of sin. They talked about the temptation of the devil who now was prowling around the world seeking who he may devour. At a young age, no doubt, Cain and Abel were hearing about the God of creation, but also the corrective God who brings order and discipline when we rebel against Him. This is a reminder for us as parents that we need to be honest and open about not just the good we did when we were growing up, but the corrective times when God had to discipline us, when we had to experience consequences. Because no doubt, Adam and Eve, as they told their children about the garden, one of the kids had to have asked, well, why aren't we there anymore? I mean, this house is nice, but it's not perfect. Where's all this perfection? We're seeing a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in our day. Where, where is the good? And mom and dad would have had to been honest and say, you know what, we blew it. We didn't listen to God. We were tempted by the devil and we went his way. At some point, we have to acknowledge in the text that God had given the prescription, the command that offerings be made. Because it seems in Genesis that Moses seems to articulate that there was a time and place that both Abel and Cain knew that they were to bring offerings to the Lord. Now there's a couple of things that we need to recognize about it. Number one, there's nothing in the text that tells us that what Cain brought was bad. We are told he brought fruit from the ground. He brought that which he produced. We are told that Abel, who was a shepherd, brought one of his sheep and 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 slaughtered it. Now some will say that the reason why God doesn't accept Cain's um, offering is because it wasn't a blood offering. It wasn't horrific enough. A.W. Pink, who's a uh, a Bible uh, teacher, spends a lot of time talking about the ugliness of sin and and there needed to be an ugly death and plants don't experience an ugly death when we harvest it. But there needed to be an ugliness to recognize it. And I love A.W. Pink, but I, I just don't buy that. I just think that's way too much uh, sermonizing of a a passage. What I think really it takes place is that Cain brought what he was supposed to, and Abel brought what he was supposed to, but still there was something wrong. And so others say it was the quality. It it is spoken of in Genesis chapter 4 that Abel brings the first fruits and the fat portions. And many Bible scholars will say, he brought the best, whereas Cain brought the worst. In essence, he brought rotten crops uh, to be offered up. And I'm hard-pressed to think that, okay? Maybe that's the case, but that would show a really, really angry guy, a sinful guy at the heart of it. And I'm not sure that that's the case. And here's the thing. Cain seems surprised... When God doesn't accept his offering. If you bring trash to the offering. Knowing God's not going to accept it. You wouldn't be surprised when he doesn't accept it. Right? Of course. I brought you trash. You weren't going to accept it. I didn't want you to accept it. And he is genuinely hurt. And dumbfounded. That God doesn't accept his offering. So I'm here to tell you. I believe. That they were to bring something of their own. That was of cost to them, which they did, one of grain and fruit, one of a lamb. They were of the highest quality. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt that they brought the highest of quality. That still begs the question, if both of them did each of those things just right, what's the problem? And seemingly, every time the Bible talks about Cain, it isn't his offering that's a problem. It isn't that he brought grain, that's not the problem. It's his heart. And the problem is, is that his heart lacked faith. This helps us to remember that we can bring the best to God, and if faith is not a part of it, it is worth nothing. Now God tells the nation of Israel this over and over again. He says, you can bring me rams and lambs, you can have the streets of Jerusalem be flooded with the blood of the best of the best, and my ear is still far from you. Because what I want is a humble and contrite heart. I don't need all this. I mean, In many ways, he says, quit killing all the animals. It isn't worth it. Because your heart is far from me. And so what we have in Cain is a guy who says, living for God is a duty. I'll do it. I'll endure it. But my heart's not in it. We're reminded of uh, the passage that tells us anything that's apart from faith is sin. We're reminded that without faith it is impossible to please God. And Cain is a reminder of those two truths. You see, Cain is a reminder to us of what Matthew chapter 7 says when people stand before God on the great day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, did I not do this? Did I not do that? I did all the right things. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, what we learn from Cain is that it's not so much of the actions that others see, but it's the attitude that only God sees. I believe that Cain did everything just right, and who could blame him? I mean, he doesn't want to disappoint mom and dad. He's the firstborn. He wants to get it right. And so he does it right, and he goes through the motions, presents it to God, and says, I fooled everybody else, God. And God says, but you didn't fool me. Now let's just pause for a moment and ask the question. How much of the spirit of Cain is living in us? Where we go through the motions. Where we can check off our list of all the religious things that we need to do. And the world, man, they see the best Christian around. They see someone who, man, they just mark off all of the right boxes. But when it comes to God, and God looks at your life, and God looks at your heart, He sits there and says, your heart's not in it. You're doing it out of duty. You're not doing it because you love me. You're not doing it because you, you want to know me. You're doing it so you can cross it off a list, so you can look good in front of some people. Listen, some of us, maybe they were all in the first service, but some of us should receive Academy Awards for the show we're putting on right now. Because we've got everybody else fooled about who the real us really is. Because we've got people thinking we've got this close and intimate relationship with God. We've got our parents fooled. There's no mention that Adam and Eve are mad at Cain's offering. They're fooled. There's no mention that Abel's like, bro, why did you bring that? That's the worst offering you could have brought. God's going to be mad at you. I think his brother was fooled. And I think far too many of us are fooling people around us into thinking we've got a vibrant and healthy relationship with God when we don't. And our thinking is, if I can just endure it, if I can just keep up the show, then everything will be fine. But Matthew chapter 7 tells us otherwise. That on that great day, Jesus will say, they didn't know. You had them fooled, but I'm not. And the offering you've been bringing with your life is not accepted. It is not viewed as righteous. And so we've got to be warned by the life of Cain that we could be fooling people that we're not fooling God. So there's a second strategy. Might I add before, go back for one second. Might I add before, this is the strategy that leads to destruction. It leads to destruction. And so faith changes things. And we've got Abel. And Abel is commended. Commended not because he brought the... Uh, the lamb or because it had blood or or because his was pure and the other one was rotten none of that what it had to do with is not so much what i want you to get off of is the idea that your actions aren't the big deal it is your heart's it's your heart's God doesn't want all gobs and gobs of money. He's not some banker that's counting money and saying, you just got to keep giving me money or time or, or your energy. God's asking the heart and we see over and over again, it's not the amount, it's the heart. That's where the widow, Jesus says, not the guy who puts down thousands of dollars is commended. It's the widow who had two mites. It was her heart. It's not the publican who gets up and prays and, and talks about all the fasting and all of the of the giving that he's done and how great of a man he is and, and that. It's the man who gets up in the humbleness of heart and beats his chest and says, I am ruined. It's the heart. God wants our heart and faith is the mechanism, the conduit that allows our heart to be geared towards God, not ourselves. And in Abel, we see living for God, is a delight that we get to enjoy. You see, Abel comes and he approaches God, not as a God that he seemingly has to just do things for, but a God that he gets to do things for. Why? Because he is so incredibly grateful for all that God has done. And he wants to honor this God. I believe that he viewed God very differently than his brother did. you see adam i 'm sorry Cain and Abel could have viewed God very differently, and I want you to remember they 're the first of the people that have to exhibit faith. Adam and Eve had walked with God, they had experienced God firsthand. no faith needed right no faith needed i don 't need to have faith to know i 'm talking to you fine people, but when I tell a story that listen This afternoon when I'm meeting with someone, they'll say, what would you do this? morning?" i say, listen, I I preached in front of some wonderful people we preached about. They're going to have to, by faith, believe me. They weren't there, right? So Adam and Eve, as they're telling stories about God, as they tell stories about God, they are telling it to their sons who have to believe by faith. Now, there's two ways you can look at, at God. You could say that God is a mean God who kicked my mom and dad out of the garden that he wasn't fair in his commandments. Really, it was the devil's fault. And now all of this evil, all of this terrible stuff that's fallen upon the world is God's fault, not ours. Where have you heard that before? We hear that from people all the time. this is God's problem. He's the one to blame. I believe Cain had that approach. The approach that, listen... God, I get it. i got to sacrifice to you. i got to do these things to make everybody happy. But really, God, I'm not buying this whole thing. You, you don't seem to be a very good God. Whereas Abel says, God, you could have killed us. You could have ended this all. But you didn't. In fact, not only did you let my mom and dad live, but you promised a redeemer. You promised a deliverer. You promised that one day, while paradise was lost, it would be regained Because of the Redeemer, the one who was to come. And because I've got a God who loves us, a God who forgives us, a God who cares for us in the good, the bad, and ugly of life, I'm going to give God my best. And that's what He does. He seemingly gives even more than He's supposed to. It is told in the book of Genesis that He not only gives of the first fruit, but he gives something more. And I believe that that something more wasn't required, but it shows the heart. You see, it's the heart of an individual who knows God has given so much, so the attitude isn't how much do I have to give God, it's how much can I try to outgive God. And some of us are in the, how much do I have to give? Lord, tell me. 10%, okay, I'll give 10%. I really don't want to, but I'll I'll give it. Compared to the generous heart, the heart that says, God, I, I'm going to give you all that I've got. It's all yours. And whatever you allow me to keep, that's great. That's cream on the top. But I'm about giving and serving and and, and giving all of my time and energy to loving you because you have given us so very much. And Abel approaches that way. And how does he approach it? Notice, he's committed to obedience. He sees it a joy to follow God in obedience. Now, one of the knocks on Christianity is that it's a do and don't do religion. And right away, we will say, no, 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 it's a relationship. Of which your pastor will say, you're wrong. It's all about do's and don'ts. There's not a sermon that I haven't preached from this pulpit that doesn't have a do this or a don't do that. The Bible is full of do's and don'ts. The premise of those do's and don'ts is the issue. Not that there aren't do's and don'ts in the Bible. The Bible's full of rules. The Bible's full of imperatives or directives that God has given. But the question is, why has God given them? To a person without faith is given to kill the joy of, that we're longing for. To a person of faith, it is to expand the joy that we can have because of God. You see, as a parent, I don't tell my kids no because I get some warped feeling of just being this evil dictator. I tell them no because I want them to know that the the road they're going on is a road that's gonna bring them trouble. It's gonna bring them heartache. It's going to bring them distress. And so I say no to things knowing them and being in relationship with them. And I say yes to things that I know are going to bring them great joy and great blessing. Well, how much more does our God in heaven do that for us? He says no to things not to kill our joy or to take away our happiness. He does so so that we might be moved to the yeses that He's given us so we might experience in greater measure The joy, the peace, and the contentment that our Creator wants us to have. And Abel sees that. And Abel rejoices in that and says, I get to follow this God. Can we say that this morning? Number two, are we celebrating what God has done? Again, Abel is looking at God with optimistic eyes, and Cain is looking at God seemingly through pessimistic eyes. Abel is saying what God has done. God has created. God has given opportunity. God has even been faithful to forgive his mom and dad's faithlessness. And in fact, his probably faithfulness as one born in sin. And he sees God as a great God. He sees God as a Opportunity to celebrate. God, I wouldn't be anywhere without you. God, I would be lost without you. Which begs the question this morning, when we gather together, when we worship the Lord, do we celebrate? Or has it become a duty, a routine that doesn't change us? You see, the the, uh, deceptiveness of Cain's response to God is breeding in our hearts each and every Sunday when we gather finally this type of faith communicates long after we're gone the book of hebrews says that though he's dead abel still speaks now this is a miracle in two ways number one as we look to the scriptures nowhere whether in the old testament or the new testament do we have any record of abel ever saying a word and yet I've just preached a whole sermon on him and his life. Number two, the Bible says though he's dead, he still speaks. His legacy goes on. I said this and I caught myself in the first service because I hadn't even thought of it. Today we celebrate Memorial Day. Those who have given their lives for something greater, able should be celebrated on Memorial Day in churches. Because his life was given so that for generations it would speak to the commitment that was made. How does a life of faith go on after we're long gone? Last week I wasn't here and my reason for being gone was I was with my parents celebrating their final Sunday at their church. My father retired from active ministry. He'll continue to serve, I'm sure, but from, uh, you know, authorized or active ministry, if you will. And the church, God bless them, they just poured out love on my parents. I mean, as a pastor, to know that my parents have been cared for as I've been cared for here uh, is just an awesome testimony to those great people. And people got up and people shared with us offline about the impact that my mom and dad have had. And, and I had the great luxury of saying, listen, the same Bill and Michelle that all you saw on Sunday or at church was the same Bill and Michelle that I saw as I grew up. They're, they're godly people. They've served God well. And they talked each and every time uh, that what you've taught me, Bill and Michelle, I'm now teaching to my kids or to my grandkids or I'm teaching my small group or, or this group of people. And, and I was beginning to see the legacy of my parents. And no doubt the legacy of my parents is being lived out between Joel and I as we live our lives. But that legacy is going and going and going. And, and generations may not know the name of Bill and Michelle at all, but they will be impacted for years to come. And but you know how? Just ask this question, who led you to the Lord? And then ask the question, who led them to the Lord? And then ask the question, who led them to the Lord? And you just keep going farther and farther back. And I'm going to tell you, at some point, you're going to get back to Abel, who showed faith. And Abel continues the legacy of faith. And we too can carry that legacy of faith as we preach the good news of Jesus Christ to more and more people. The legacy, they may not know who we are. We may be dead, but we still speak. Can I tell you something? That's not true of riches. That's not true of fame. That's not true of power. There have been great men and women who have owned this world and we don't even know who they are. We don't even talk about him, but we still talk about Abel, who lived by faith and not by sight. Let me close with just some thoughts here and just give me a couple moments. There's some points to ponder, some points to ponder about God. Number one, with regards to God, God is serious. God is serious and always demands obedience to his commands. He always demands obedience. So if you're playing with God and thinking, God, these are just suggestions, you're wrong. God demands obedience. He is a holy God. And He has told us how we are to approach Him. And don't get in the idea that I just got to approach Him right in action and not in attitude. God talks way more about our attitudes and our heart than He does about what we bring. God is concerned about the real us. And if you're playing games with God today, cut it out. God is serious and there will be a day of judgment that will come where the seriousness of your mistake and not following God's commands will come full weight on you. And your words will be the same words of Cain. The punishment is too much for me to bear. But in that moment, in that moment, it will be too late. So the story of Cain helps us in this. And that's the second point that we need to remember about God. When God gives a second chance, and listen, He doesn't always give a second chance, but when He does, change course. So Cain has missed it. His heart wasn't right. He, he, he comes unworthily to the, the um, sacrifice altar. And God says, you blew it. He tells him. You blew it. The reason why you're sad is you blew it. And God says to him, it's not too late. Don't you know if you do what is right, you'll be accepted? God says, I'll give you a second chance. But notice that sin is crouching at your door. It's ready to overtake you. There's an opportunity that you and I have, but at some point we allow sin so far into our lives, we run the risk that we'll never come back to the Lord. And so God is offering you this morning a second chance. Stop going through the motions. Stop living for self. God is saying to you, don't you know if you do what is right, you will be accepted. By the blood of Jesus Christ, you will be accepted. If you repent and turn from your ways, you will be accepted. God will embrace you. God's love will be showered upon you. But Cain didn't do it. And sadly, some in this place will go the way of Cain. How about for those that are trying to live like Abel? Let's talk about our faithfulness and I'll close. Our faithfulness, three things that I want you to see about our faithfulness. Number one, faithfulness at times can cause conflict. Nowhere in the text do we see that there was a conflict between the brothers until Abel was faithful and Cain wasn't. Some of you have lived in families where your relationship with your family was great until you met Jesus. Until you started reading your Bible. And you're like, wait a minute. I know Jesus. I love Jesus. I've been a part of Jesus. Why would conflict come? Because Jesus said it would, right? Jesus said, I haven't come to bring peace, but in fact, I'm going to bring division to families. Because of how you view Jesus is going to determine whether people love you or hate you. And Abel is hated, not because he's a Tender of sheep. Not because he was a bad younger brother. Not because of any of the things that he did. The reason why he was hated and then killed was because he was faithful. An unbelieving world, an evil world hates faithfulness. Because it's a reminder of their own sin. And sometimes you'll be faithful in the workplace or in your home or in your community. And you'll be reviled for it. Remember, Jesus was. And we will as well. Number two, faithfulness is costly. He died. And we need to recognize, though our heart is right with God, does not mean that everything will go well with us. Abel died because he was faithful. And we need to recognize that we may lose some of our rights, we may lose some of our freedoms, we may lose some of our our things, we may even lose our life. Because faithfulness is a costly endeavor. And finally, it's a choice we have to make every day. If you and I are going to live the life of Abel, it isn't a decision we made at some youth rally. It isn't a decision we made at some service on a Sunday morning years ago. But it's a decision we make each and every day. It's a decision we make in the easy things of life. It's a decision we make in the hard things of life. It's a decision we make in the little things of life. It is a decision we live by in the hard things. We are told that the righteous shall live by faith. And so what needs to change in your life? What show needs to be put away? But part of the real you needs to embrace the God of the universe so that faith can be perfected in you. Faith is lived out each and every day. It's lived out in front of church-going people. It's lived out in front of atheists. It's lived out in families. It's lived out amongst people we've never met before. Faith is lived out. And it's a choice we need to make each And every day. And I pray for your good and for God's glory that you and I will make it for Him.